News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Ten years ago, Superstorm Sandy barreled down through New York City, and Pamela Pettijohn was at her home in Coney Island. She was there despite warnings to evacuate. New York City and Hurricane Sandy's sites. At least 375,000 people were told to evacuate low-lying areas Sunday. You in these areas, you should leave them this afternoon. Uh, low-lying areas, Zone A, include Coney Island, Manhattan Beach, and Red Hook, and Flight other areas. flooding along. is the biggest concern in the nation's largest city as Hurricane Sandy approaches. Forecasters say the storm surge could reach 11 feet. Just a year earlier, in 2011, another storm, Tropical Storm Irene, was forecast to be bad. Bad enough that the city shut down the subway and told people in coastal flood zones like Coney Island to evacuate. Irene came just before Sandy and all my neighbors left. I was the only one that stayed home. And so they left and they called me back and they said, is everything okay? I was like, everything is fine. Nothing happened. But while Irene mostly hit regions of upstate New York and Vermont, Sandy walloped Coney Island. Across the city, the storm caused an estimated $19 billion worth of damages. It also killed 43 people, including two in Coney Island. And it damaged tens of thousands of homes, including Pamela's. When Sandy came, no one left. And we basically lost everything. It wasn't um, the ocean that flooded us. It was Coney Island Creek that rose up and flooded everyone. Coney Island Creek had been something to admire, to look at, enjoy, until it ended up in everybody's living room. And that changed how everybody looked at Coney Island Creek. And yet, even though Sandy devastated Coney Island, 10 years later, the peninsula is buzzing with new construction, as we heard on a recent visit. Since 2013, there have been almost 2,000 apartments built in Coney Island. That's more than triple the housing built compared to the prior decade. That's according to an analysis of the Department of City Planning data that some of my colleagues did at the city. And that's despite the shadow of Superstorm Sandy and the looming risks of climate change, which makes storms like Sandy much more likely. One study published in the journal PNAF found that the risk of Sandy-like storm surges will increase sharply this century because of climate change. That's the kind of flooding that Pamela Pettijohn described when she said that Coney Island Creek ended up in her home. And these risks, they're not in the distant future. We're already facing them. That's according to Mark Wysocki, the New York State climatologist. The rate at which the sea level is increasing is not at a uniform rate. It's getting faster and faster with time. Sandy was 10 years ago now? Yes. Now we have a higher sea level than we had 10 years ago. And Sandy was not a big storm, but now a hurricane that's going to come on shore next year is going to do a lot more damage than Sandy. Not because it's more powerful, it's because it has a higher ocean to work on. Just so I'm totally clear here, if we were to replicate Sandy, but now in 2022 instead of in 2012, that same storm would probably be more hazardous just because we have more sea level rise. Correct. The other issue is it's not only just the water rising, but let's take storms. The two big ones that we talk about is summertime with hurricanes. Right. And wintertime, we talk about the nor'easters. Those two storms are have something in common. They're along the coastline. Mm-hmm. They have very high winds mm-hmm. and very low pressures. Mm-hmm. The low pressure actually allows the sea level to rise underneath the storm. And then with the winds whipping up the very large waves, now with a bigger, higher ocean, mm-hmm. and now you lift it even more, mm-hmm. these things will 
come in with usually maybe a one to two foot storm surge. Mm -hmm. They're going to be three to six feet now. So I'd ask you to stand on the beach and imagine six feet of water coming at you from the ocean, not just I'm, as one wave, but as an entire wall, yeah. just coming on. I'm not six feet tall, so. <laughs> I, well, okay. <laughs> well, get a snorkel. <laughs> you might want to get a snorkel. Sandy was so devastating, in part because since 1950, the sea levels had increased by nine inches. They worsened the storm surge. But over the next 15 years, the waters around Coney Island will rise an additional six inches. That might not sound like much, but according to NASA, every inch of sea level rise translates to a loss of about 100 inches of coastal land. So six inches of sea level rise across a relatively flat coastline means the shoreline moves inland by roughly 50 feet. Which is a lot, right? And all of that leads to a pretty obvious question. Why? Why is New York City building so much in a part of the city that Sandy already walloped? And where the likelihood of getting walloped in the future, and walloped worse, is just going up? It's a question also on the minds of former city officials, like Anita Lermont, former chair of the city's planning commission. From a climate perspective, it's a completely legitimate question. Like, why would you allow the density in places that are more, you know, flood prone when you have places that aren't flood prone at all and you could do it there? Where you allow for density and certain uses is dependent on a host of factors, and climate is one of them. But in New York City, we have spent a lot of money in places where the battle will ultimately be lost, but we're not ready politically to concede. So that's sort of what we have to do. That's not just a question for Coney Island. Nationwide, instead of taking a step back from the coast, we've doubled down. According to U.S. Census data, 40 million more of us live in coastal areas than we did in the 1960s. And that growth in coastal areas, it's outpaced the growth in non-coastal areas by about 30%. We keep building and building in places where maybe we shouldn't be living at all. So today we delve into why New York City and so many other places are building in spots where the battle will be lost, as Anita put it and why it's so hard to build in places that are much better for a climate-changing world. I'm Kendra Pierre-Lewis. And I'm Samantha Maldonado. This is a special edition of FAQ NYC, the podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. Over here where the laundry man is, it was a hairdresser. We measured 10 feet of water. So my house is, my house, my house is the one with the tree. Yeah, these little plants. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is Pamela Pettijohn, who we met earlier in the episode. She's a retired MTA worker, president of the Coney Island Beautification Project, and a longtime Coney Island resident. Earlier this year, she drove us around her neighborhood detailing all the construction. Okay, so now, where is Casa Matiti's building? Oh yeah, it's so shiny. Oh yeah. Wait, that's it? Yeah, oh yeah, it's self-contained. It's supposed to have its own supermarket, its own everything. I don't think the supermarket's there. <laughs> I don't think it's open yet. But um, I'm going to make a U-turn. He brought up all of this land over here. So he owns it all. He owns this building. And it's right on the border. It's right on the boardwalk. The buildings Pamela is referring to are these tall white and glass towers located right on the beach. They're big and gleaming in a way that reminds me of pictures I've seen of South Beach. But of course, they aren't in Miami. They're in Brooklyn. Most of the nearby buildings are older and brick. But this building... It isn't just flashy, it's fancy. A one bedroom will cost you just under $3,000. Window pools, 
indoor gyms, indoor uh, movie theater. You know, just uh, I, I wanted to build something that say the people will say, "Wow, I'm glad I lived there." And I made a commercial. Mm. Ocean Drive is the newest luxury residences in New York City. The only luxury rentals in New York with a spectacular ocean view. You wake up in the morning and breathe that ocean air. I'll certify that you're going to live 10 years longer. I said, you breathe in that ocean air, I will certify you're going to live 10 years longer. My lawyers were yelling at me. I said, you know, that's the way I feel about it. It's just my opinion. This is John Castamatidis. He's the owner of the Gristetti's supermarket chain and the WABC radio station. He briefly ran for mayor in 2013. And he's a property developer for a lot of places, including those glittering towers right on the beach in Coney Island. Those buildings contain rental units, which means he carries a lot of the risks that come with building on the coast. And we want to know, how risky does he think it is? Just in terms of you building a development right on the beach, I mean, you know, flood maps show that in, you know, in just a few decades, we're going to be underwater. All of Coney Island. How, how old are you? I am 31. They said, it, they said the same thing 40 years ago. So tell me, what does that mean? <clears throat> that means it's all bullshit. Wow. A climate change denying coastal property developer. And just so we're clear, while it is true that climate change started getting limited attention in the press in the 1970s, the first big UN report that synthesized all of the climate predictions didn't come out until 1990. And overall, the predictions have been, if anything, a little too conservative. We're seeing some impacts faster than the models predicted. And the building John Katzmatidis had built is designed for some of those impacts. It's not just luxurious, it's also resilient. The building was built after the last uh, disaster we had in New York. So we built it to last everything. Backup power, uh, backup generators, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We built the garage on the second level so the, the floors don't start till the third level or something. So the worst, the, the only things that will drown will be the cars. Mm. And they're replaceable. Mm-hmm. So why build high if you don't believe in sea level rise coming up? It makes other people feel comfortable. Mm. But you think it's for for show? No, I think it's a smart thing to do in case you do get a flood. It's also the law. Ocean Drive is built according to new regulations and building codes that were put into place after Sandy. Rules, according to Cecil Tribe, that are meant to keep property safe. After Sandy... The building code was really strengthened in -hmm. terms of flood protection. These days, Shrib is the chief sustainability officer at New York University. But after Sandy, he was the managing director for the Building Resiliency Task Force. Which the city convened after Hurricane and or Superstorm Sandy to make our buildings more ready for the next crisis that come. And so all the designers have to look at what they call the DFE, the design flood elevation, and make sure that the building is safe from that. What is design flood elevation? So the design flood elevation is in a certain magnitude of storm surge. So you can look at the 100-year flood mm-hmm. or the 1,000-year flood. What is the height of the storm surge at the location you are building? Mm-hmm. So if the height of the 100-year flood is five feet, 
above normal normal sea level, then you need to raise you need to be higher than that amount at the location you're building. The phrase 100-year floodplain is thrown around a lot when it comes to risk from flooding. But as Cecil points out, it's something of a misnomer. Many people think that when you call something the 100-year flood or the 1,000-year flood, that means that will happen once in 100 years, and then they are saddened and shocked when it (laughs) comes multiple times. What it means that given past behavior, the chances that will come uh, 1% each year in in a 100-year flood. Right. Of course, when you roll the dice, you could roll snake eyes five times in a row, and that can happen for hurricanes too. All of which means if you are going to build a building in the floodplain, it has to be made to withstand the extreme weather events like hurricanes and floods that come with being there. Exactly. And because you and I are the curious sort, we wondered what one of those more resilient buildings is actually like. So we toured one. And unlike the glittering beachfront property of John Katsimatidis, This building is co-developed by L&M Development Partners. It's not located right on the ocean, but a block away. And while Ocean Drive, the one that John Katzmatidis built, is luxury, this building meets the city's criteria for affordable housing. And where are we right now? So right now we're on the um, we're on the eighth floor um, terrace, kind of looking out at uh, looking out at the boardwalk, the water, and the area around the building. That's Elaine Braithwaite. Senior Director at L&M Development Partners, she took us on a tour of the development on a beautiful day in late summer. The development was completed in 2021, and it consists of two 16-story towers above a seven-story podium. There's offices and space for retail on the ground floors. And on the roof deck, a little bit away from us, a child and an adult are playing and taking in the sunshine. The ocean shimmers in the distance, and you can see the loop of the Thunderbolt roller coaster from here, too. Because of where we are, none of our major uh, mechanical equipment or systems are located on the ground floor. Everything's on floor two or above. Um, we have some of the mechanical systems here and on the second floor roof. In addition, like our electrical room, which you typically find at grade, we raise that to the second floor. Elevating the building is not its only unique feature to deal with coastal flooding. Other features include ground-level windows made out of the same super strong glass they use in aquariums, special drains to reduce flooding, especially when it rains a lot, and a system of flood barriers that, according to John Osterk, the building's manager, helps keep water out when there are storm surge events like Sandy. So in front of all our residential entrances, they're basically, you, you see the bolts on the wall so that the flood barriers can get deployed. Most of the time, the building looks like any other building, except for these thick bolts on the wall. But when a storm is predicted to hit, the building staff begins the process of rolling the flood barriers out. How much warning do you get? We have insurance guidelines. The insurance companies educate us on these events. And it's just a matter of keeping an eye on weather, on, on the alerts, weather alerts. And when there's a an event, you know, it kind of starts off with a warning and it normally yeah. escalates. So it's just keeping track of it on my phone and then communicating it to the building superintendent who then communicates it to the staff. We go into a room on the ground floor right off the garage to see the barriers. It's kind of gray. The walls are made out of cinder block. And this maybe 10 foot by 10 foot space is filled with these heavy metal rectangles that when erected are designed to protect the building from flooding. Those are the slats. There's different numbers and colors on these, which we have uh, a plan which we follow. That's number 14, this is number 11. These are the posts, they're different sizes. Those are the middle posts where you have a 
large opening that would go into the ground. This is about 80 pounds, this, this one piece. It's really heavy. It's kind of like Ikea furniture on crack. It is <laughs> Ikea furniture for flood barriers. That, that's really what this is. It's a lot of nuts and bolts. So these get tightened. The, you loosen these, um, put the post in, drop the slats, and tighten them. And that's really all, all that needs to be done. I have to admit that the building was nice. And it has a lot of resilience measures and green features that, honestly, my apartment does not. Right. It's a nice look at how buildings are constructed for flood protection moving forward. But there are bigger questions as to whether living in Coney over the long term will remain possible. Issues that are linked to the geography of Coney Island itself. So Coney Island is technically a peninsula, which means it risks flooding from not one, but two sides. On one side, you have the ocean, where New Yorkers and tourists head for summer fun. And on the other side, you have Coney Island Creek. It's a pretty lively spot where a lot of locals hang out. They wade and go fishing. The two water bodies are separate but related. When the combination of high winds, pressure, and sea level rise sent water surging onto shore during Sandy, it was water from the creek side that experts say did the most of the damage. Right, and that isn't the only real risk facing Coney Island. One area is right there in the neighborhood's name, Island. While these days Coney Island is technically a peninsula, according to Bernice Rosenswey, a professor of environmental science at Sarah Lawrence College, that wasn't always the case. Coney Island actually used to be an island, and, you know, throughout the 20th century. They landfilled a lot of what was historically Coney Island Creek and the wetlands that are associated with Coney Island Creek um, and replaced that with this rather low-lying land. This filled-in land is more susceptible to flooding. And to be clear, it's not unique to Coney Island. Battery Park City in lower Manhattan was built upon landfill too, for instance. Yeah. So not only is Coney Island low-lying and built on filled-in land, but it's also kind of perilously located. It's located in New York Harbor where storm surges can funnel up the shore into the harbor. And all of these risks lay atop this other problem. The land around Coney Island, in fact, the land around a lot of the East Coast of the United States, is sinking for reasons related to the last ice age. So when you combine the rising seas from climate change with the fact that the land is sinking, you end up with a level of sea level rise that's around twice as fast as it would be otherwise. And as a result, projections show that by 2080, most of Coney Island will be underwater during high tide. It's why almost everyone we spoke to described this new housing on Coney Island as an interim solution, not necessarily a long-term solution, even with its resilient elements. This is Deborah Morris, who used to work for the city in the housing department. She oversaw a lot of the redevelopment after Sandy. Do I think people will be living in that new, the building that's new in Coney Island in 50 years? Probably not. Does that mean whoever built that building, luxury mm -hmm. or um, government subsidy, like... Are they gonna get the full upside on it? Probably not. But does that mean it's not providing a valuable service here in 2022? I, I think it is. And this from Seth Pinsky, who served as the director of Bloomberg's Special Initiative for Rebuilding and Resiliency, and was the former president of the city's Economic Development Corporation. When you look out 30 years, but especially when you look out 50 years, you look out 100 years, the projections are so dire that there's almost nothing that you can do today to protect yourself from the 100-year risk. And so your choice is either to despair mm. or to put it out of mind. And most people choose to just put it out of mind. And the strategy that we adopted in response to this 
was to try to break the problem down into smaller increments. And so we very deliberately, rather than looking out to whatever is 2113, we looked out to 2030, and then we looked out to 2050. And when you look at the problem as it was projected in 2030 and 2050, it was still a really serious challenge, but it was a manageable challenge. And the thinking that we had was, if we can protect the city from 2030 to 2050, then that buys us time to think about the strategy for 2060, 2070, 2080, and 2090. And at some point, technology will change, um, the, our, our focus will change, and we'll be able to address the even more dire consequences that are coming behind 2030 and 2050. 2050 might sound far away, but I'm recording from a home that is more than a century old. By some estimates, the average age of New York's housing stock is around 70 years old, which is why some people, like Quash Jacob, a geophysicist and professor emeritus at Columbia University, think that New Yorkers deserve longer-term planning. Given the sea level rise scenarios that the NPCC, the New York City Panel on Climate Change, has projected for the future, they'll be good for a couple of decades, and maybe, if we are lucky, towards the end of the century, and then all these new units out there will be flooded. And before, the people can't get to and from of the houses, so how do they get to work when they need to work? Uh, I mean, do they swim it? Do we have water taxis uh, or amphibian taxis? I mean, it's just mind-boggling how short-sighted the city has been in its planning process. So we know that Coney Island is very vulnerable, and there's not even big coastal infrastructure projects being built right now to protect it. And we also know from an analysis that my colleagues did at the city that since 2013, there have been almost 2,000 apartments built in Coney Island. A reasonable person might wonder why. Are you calling me a reasonable person? Thank you. Well. (laughs) (laughs) And the answer, in part, goes back to policy, specifically housing policy. We all know that New York City is in the middle of a massive housing shortage. And according to Deborah Morris, who, remember, oversaw a lot of redevelopment after Sandy, there's a reason. Zoning is primarily suppressing development. Yep, zoning. Despite the city's reputation for density, many neighborhoods have rules that limit density. And that creates very few places where you can develop housing for anyone. So the obvious solution might be to change the zoning, right? You would do what's called an upzoning. But when you try to allow for this kind of increased development, you often get a lot of pushback from existing community members and the officials that represent them. Overdevelopment is in place to destabilize our low-density communities by the policies of radical socialists and social justice warriors. There is a war on low-density zoning. Does anybody here think that your property value is actually going to go up with a gigantic building next door to you? No. 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 That was tape from Michael Cass. He recorded a lot of the public hearings over the recent Bruckner Boulevard rezoning proposal in the Bronx. And as you can tell from that tape, part of this pushback comes because, well, change can be hard. Some people say they worry that it will hurt the character of their neighborhood or that the new project won't be affordable enough, that it will price people out. 
And one that comes up increasingly often in some of the less dense residential areas is worries about really big buildings, towers. They don't necessarily want a three-story building replaced with a high-rise. But I talked to Thaddeus Pulaski about this last point, and he said it doesn't have to be this way. These days, Thaddeus is the managing director of the Center for Resilient Cities and Landscapes at Columbia University. But previously, he helped plan for disasters at the New York City Office of Emergency Management. And he says that if we were more thoughtful about how we upzoned, we could build differently in the places that are further from the water in ways that allow for more density, but not necessarily more height. When people hear density, they think large apartment towers. But density could be triplexes and quadplexes. Yeah, that's right. The urban design world calls it the missing middle, like in housing policy terms. And so I often tell people it's like Somerville, Massachusetts, or in Montreal. Montreal is like the land of plexes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think we have some neighborhoods like that in New York. You know, like Park Slope is pretty dense, for instance. And, um, you know, lots of brownstone Brooklyn is actually pretty pretty dense and quite livable, you know, like very desirable places to live. But pushback against upzoning plays out very differently from neighborhood to neighborhood. That's according to Sam Stein, a housing policy analyst at the Community Service Society. Technically, all neighborhoods are as easy to rezone as any other, but politically, yes, some neighborhoods are easier to rezone than others. And this has to do with who has political power, Um, And who needs things from the city? Things like who needs money for schools? So take, for example, school improvements. In poor neighborhoods, the public schools really need a lot of capital money just to get to, you know, basic uh, safe and healthy conditions or to expand to fit the number of students that are there. In wealthy neighborhoods, the PTAs can, you know, have an auction where they raise hundreds of thousands of dollars and invest that money themselves or the buildings never fell into disrepair in the first place because they had the political capital to ensure that. They don't need an upzone uh, in order to get that money. And so poor parts of the city that have seen structural disinvestment over time and where the people living there don't have the independent uh, economic power to raise the money themselves often need to agree to upzonings in order to get the things that wealthier neighborhoods either get from the city already or can raise money for themselves. Yeah, like when the city proposed rezoning parts of Coney Island in the early 2000s, which ultimately passed in 2009, residents there were told the plan would spur things like a grocery store and other amenities. Those were things that had been missing from the community for a while. When rezoning proposals come to wealthier neighborhoods, on the other hand, those communities can exert pressure to reduce density, a phenomenon known as downzoning. Often we've seen upzonings in relatively low-income areas, often majority people of color. And uh, especially during the Bloomberg era, we saw downzonings of majority white, uh, largely upper-income areas of the city. And this didn't really correlate with the logic of urban planning. It didn't correlate with where the transit stops are, for example, Uh, It really did correlate to to race and income more than anything else. Neighborhoods that were more likely to be downzoned were white, and neighborhoods that were more likely to be upzoned tend to be Black and Hispanic. We're in the midst of a housing shortage. So one school of thought goes that building housing in places we can build is important, even if those places are more vulnerable to certain climate risks. At the same time, beyond climate risk, research suggests that upzoning can move new people into a community, 
even as they displace existing residents. One 2019 report found that after the Greenpoint and Williamsburg neighborhoods were upzoned, there was a net gain of about 20,000 people, which means a lot of people moved in exactly as the upzone intended. But hidden in that total increase is the fact that the number of Latino residents dropped by about 15,000 people, in part because the neighborhoods became too expensive. So the concern is not just that we're moving new people into risky areas, but that we're also displacing existing members of the community, which can be destabilizing. Yeah, and at the same time, we are losing housing in areas that are more resilient to flooding. This concept is called net loss of units. And to understand what that means, picture a building with, say, 130 units or apartments on New York's Upper West Side. It's a neighborhood that does not experience the kind of coastal flooding that we see in Coney Island. It was mostly unscathed during Sandy, for example. And now let's say a developer buys that building with the goal of tearing it down and replacing it with a bigger building, but one with many fewer apartments, say 45. The end result is this building will house fewer people. And an analysis by my colleague at the city found that over the past decade, we're building more housing along low-lying coasts than in higher inland places that are safer from storms. So to summarize, because of zoning rules, it is difficult to put denser housing in many neighborhoods. And it's hard to change those zoning rules in many lower-risk areas because of community pressure. In fact, in recent years, some of those neighborhoods have pushed for downzoning to further restrict the kind of housing that can be built. Yeah, and at the same time, some of those neighborhoods are losing units anyway through de-densification. That is, developers who tear down old buildings and replace them with new buildings that have fewer units, or people who buy up the unit next door to enlarge in their own apartment. So the end result is... Some of the only places that are available for us to easily develop with housing are in areas that have higher flood risk. And underneath all of this, according to Seth Pinsky, who worked in rebuilding after Sandy in the Bloomberg administration, is that officials and policymakers are bound by what they think they can push through. I think that advocates do a disservice when they sound an alarm bell that is so alarming to render people incapable of feeling like they can solve a problem. I also think that advocates do a disservice when they focus on solutions without really having a serious plan for how to put those solutions into practice. And I I think that um, political reality is, is a reality and that if you propose solutions that are not politically realistic, you're not really proposing solutions. You're making wishes. And at this point, we don't need to make wishes. We need action. The question I have with this line of thinking is that if you propose solutions that are politically feasible, but not in line with the physics of climate change, aren't you also making wishes? Wishes, according to A.R. Siders, an assistant professor of disaster research at the University of Delaware and a former New York City resident that puts real people in vulnerable situations. We need to retreat from the coasts, but the first step in retreating is to stop advancing. And right now we haven't even stopped advancing. And if you are going to develop in these areas, then what's the plan? Because the plan, I think the plan can't be that, hey, we're going to armor them all because we just don't have the finances. And frankly, we don't seem to have the concrete to just build concrete walls in front of the entire U.S. coast. And even if those homes are there, you still have to think about the roads, about their cars, about their ability to get access to hospitals, to emergency services, to, and then what that what's in that floodwater, right? The amount of floodwater that's coming and swirling around those homes that's filled with sewage, like raw, untreated sewage, right? Every time you see someone wandering through the floodplains in their rubber boots, you should be thinking about what's in that floodwater. Yeah, so sure, their homes are dry, but does that mean they're safe? Not really. 
It's why Klaus, the Columbia geophysicist, says that we need to rethink where we put housing. He says to find solutions to both the housing crisis and the climate crisis, we need to think more broadly and more holistically. Where is the comprehensive planning process in this city? Some of the city council members got together and said, we need a comprehensive plan, and they passed a so-called comprehensive waterfront resiliency plan. Uh, But if you look at it, it's everything but comprehensive. It's only spatially more inclusive, but it has no long-term vision. It has no systematic approach, for instance, including the only thing that's long-term sustainable, namely managed retreat from those neighborhoods that are most at risk. And where would we move? Well, it to high-lying neighborhoods that are already developed, many of them low-density, high-elevation areas, But that means you have to bring in both the to-be-displaced community into the game as well as the recipient community because it will be a huge change for them too. What Klaus is saying is that we need to start having these types of conversations now, well before communities are faced with the question of whether or not they need to be upzoned. It could also stave off down zonings in neighborhoods where it would make more sense to put housing in the future. In some ways, the people shaping policies and requirements are starting to do this. For example, there's an upzoning of Soho, and they've limited development in really risky places like Edgemere and the Rockaways. But overall, they're acting with the more immediate future in mind. The high-end projections for the 2050s uh, provides us with a reasonably conservative estimate That's Michael Morella, the Director of Sustainability Planning with the city's planning department. Going beyond the 2050s, there's a significant range between what the New York City Panel on Climate Change projects as the high-end estimates and the lower-end estimates. And when there's that vast range uh, as we go beyond the next 30 years, it makes decision-making a bit more challenging, which is why we need to, as I said, have a have an eye out towards what the potential is for the long-term future, but also with a clarity of thought and clarity of insight for the near-term decisions that we have to make, recognizing that over the course of the next 80 years, which is a relatively sizable time frame, we are going to have to continue to evolve and adapt. And the decisions that we want to be making today, we want to make certain that those don't curtail our options in the future. Whatever way forward the city takes, climate change is going to force the city and those of us who live here to make hard decisions that have real human consequences. In fact, according to Pamela Pettyjohn, whose home flooded during Superstorm Sandy, it already is. And, and the thing about it is that you've made such an investment in the community. It's not just living here. You know, you're invested with, you know, this is my support system. This is where, I, where everybody is. This is where I know. That's our show. You've been listening to FAQ NYC, the podcast of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc. It's supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash donate if you'd like to pitch in. Harry Siegel is the executive producer of FAQ NYC, and this episode was hosted and produced by me, Samantha Maldonado. And by me, Kendra Pierre-Lewis. It was engineered by Adam Kamira, 
Special thanks to Alex Bloomberg, Anna Ladd, Rachel Waldholz, Daniel Ackerman, and Caitlin Kinney for all their assistance in putting this episode together. And thanks to my colleagues Suhail Bhatt, Sam Rabia, Richard Kim, Hassani Gittens, and Alyssa Katz, as well as the many folks who lent us their time and insight for this podcast. F-A-Q. F-A-Q.